You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. All right, well, if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Revelation 12, that's where we're going to be this morning. And uh, if you listen fast, I'll try not to keep you too long. I know this is going to be a little longer service than normal. Um, But I do want to warn you on the outset... Uh, this, this could be some tough stuff. Um, I'm, maybe I get in your kitchen a little bit today. And so uh, maybe I got your attention. Everybody's like, oh, crap, here we go. Uh, but uh, we don't have pews, but you can grab the chair in front of you and, and hold on tight. Uh, but I do feel convicted. It's something that's been working on me. Uh, and I think that it's something that the church needs to hear as, as a whole, uh, including our own individual church. So maybe... Uh, maybe it gets under your skin. I don't know. Maybe I make you mad this morning. I do have to warn you, uh, most of you know I'm a baseball coach at the high school. This next year will be my 20th year uh, coaching high school baseball. And so uh, just fair warning, uh, if you do get mad at me, you'll have to take a number and get in the back of the line uh, because literally every decision I make makes somebody mad. So uh, I'm used to that and I'm cool with it, but uh, my encouragement to you this morning is let the word work. Like if you, if you get flustered, if it gets under your skin a little bit, it's a word. It's not me. It's a word. You can still come at me. I give you permission, but it's a word. Let the word work. And so this morning we're going to talk about spiritual warfare uh, for just a little bit. And I wanted to read you. I wanted to start by reading you uh, just a handful of headlines. Like these are these are from the past four to six weeks uh, in the United States of America. Headlines, whether it's on the internet, newspapers. Uh, but here's just a few. Dallas valedictorian praised for her surprise graduation speech championing abortion rights. I don't know if you guys saw that story, but so, and I don't know if you know how things work, but you get the best grades of the class, you're the valedictorian, you get to give a speech. Typically, you got to have that speech in about a week before graduation. Administration reads over it. You can say this, you can't say that. You can say this, this is good. If they don't like it, you got to rewrite it, give it back to them, they give you the go. Uh, This girl turned her speech in, they approved it. She goes off the rails, decides she wants to champion abortion, talk about how every woman should have the right to kill their own baby if they want to, and uh, it's headline news. And instead of how, what a travesty that speech is, uh, mainstream media praised it and how she was such a bold uh, voice for America, and that was a positive thing. That's uh, unbelievable. Uh, next headline, Drag Queen Story Hour brings glamorous, positive voices to libraries and bookstores. Unbelievable. In case you didn't know, that's happened in Cookville. That's not where that headline came from, but that very thing has happened in Cookville, the public library. Uh, That's where we're at. Here's another crazy one. Man gives birth to his own baby. That is not... So when I was growing up... We may be here a while, but when I was growing... When I was growing up, you know, it was real. It was a cool thing to do. I remember being about Brody's age, about 10 to 13, and your mom's shopping for groceries, and they used to have the Weekly World News, black and white, in the, you know, Bat Boys. Everybody remember that? Am I the only weirdo? So that sounds like, so I was like, man, I want to see what that says this week. But this, uh, it didn't come from there. This is, a, this is a major newspaper. Like, this is normal, quote-unquote normal news. Man gives birth to his own baby. Unbelievable. You can't make that up. Uh... Here's one that really gets under my skin, and I've seen kind of some similar things heading in this direction, not this extreme, uh, in the school system. But it says, some critical theory scholars argue that 2 plus 2 can sometimes equal 5. 
Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, literally, that's what... I mean, I have sat in meetings. I really don't want to get in trouble. It seems like I get in trouble a lot. But I have sat in meetings where it has been explained to me that if a kid answers a math problem and they got the wrong answer, if they can explain how they got their wrong answer, they still get partial credit. Okay, that's here. But this 2 plus 2 can equal 5. Are you serious? Like, that's a legit headline. So you have to look at those, and they seem... Interesting may not be the right word. It's more growingly depressing, right, that you would come across those headlines because five years ago, you wouldn't even imagine that's possible. Like, you go into the editor's room and say, hey, here's my story. They laugh you out of the room. We don't have to read it. They just see the headline, but that's not the case. And it seems like more and more, if you pay attention, if you're not living under a rock, you encounter those headlines more and more. And so you have to ask the question, how? How can that be? How can each of those headlines that I just read off, how can they be actually printed? How can people believe those? Because to the rational, the logical mind, which is where I live 99% of the time, it doesn't make sense. Man gives birth to his own baby. That makes zero sense. But I want to make the argument this morning that they, those things don't make sense because we choose to look at them through the wrong lens. That's why they don't make sense, because we're looking at them through the wrong lens. You'd be, you'd be correct to argue that to the rational person, man gives birth to his own baby, that makes no sense. That's a correct statement, zero sense. But if you begin to look at headlines like those through the lens of spiritual warfare, now things become a little more clear. This is the only way it can make sense. And that's the argument that I want to make this morning, that for far too long what the church has done, especially the Western church, we've taken things far too casually, and we discount the notion of spiritual warfare. And we've done it. Why have we done that? Well, we've done it because we've grown accustomed to the Western way of thought. And I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody. We want to live in the concrete. I want to be able to touch it. I want to be able to hold it. I want it to make sense to me. I want it to be explainable. Why? Because that's comfortable. Because in my own mind, that gives me some sense of control. Well, if I can touch it, I can control it. And that makes me feel good about it. If I can't control it, if I can't touch it, I don't like that. And that's where we fall with spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare makes us uncomfortable because I can't touch it. It doesn't always make sense. And so what we do is we just push it to the side. And as a result, as the church, we become neutralized and ineffective. And that is what the enemy wants. That's what he wants. So what I want to do this morning, and if it takes us a while, it takes us a while. If you want to leave, you, there's a door right there. But... I want us to get reacquainted with the idea that spiritual warfare is real. And as Christians, we're called to be on the front lines. And here's, here's the deal. Satan wants us to be ineffective and neutralized. Satan wants you, make it personal, Satan wants you to be ineffective and neutralized. And Christ wants us to be active participants in his victory. That's the two sides right there. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how do we avoid being ineffective? And how do we walk in victory? 
How do we avoid being ineffective and how do we walk in victory? And you heard Brody read this morning, our primary text is going to be Revelation 12, 7 through 12. Only six verses, six short verses, but we're taught so much about the reality of spiritual warfare, about our great enemy Satan, and about Christ the victor. So let's let's read that again because it's been a minute. But it says, Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. That passage begins with one simple statement. Then war broke out in heaven. Maybe you want to underline that. Then war broke out in heaven. If you believe Scripture, if you believe that it's infallible and inerrant, which just means there's no mistakes, if you believe from cover to cover in the Bible there are no mistakes, then you're told right there very simply that spiritual warfare is real. You can't deny that it's not real. It says, then war broke out in heaven. Again, go back to those headlines. I don't think you have to go any further because they don't make sense without this reality. Then war broke out in heaven. Now, if you read the Bible inquisitively, which I think you should, you see that statement, then war broke out in heaven. You have to ask the question, why? Why would there be war in heaven? What caused the warfare? Well, if we go back to Revelation twelve five, it says, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That right there, that one single verse, talks about a woman giving birth to a son. That son is none other than Jesus Christ. And it's his birth and work to bring you salvation that sets off the war. So you ask the question, why is there war in heaven? The birth of this kid. That's why there's war in heaven. You could go as far to make the argument that this war started even prior to the birth of the child. Go back to Genesis 3.15. This is the first mention of the gospel where it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God speaking. And he says, and between your offspring, he's speaking to Eve. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He's speaking to Satan as a result of Satan's interaction with Eve. So from that very moment, where this is Genesis 3.15 is essentially God looking at Satan and says, Game on. Game on. Then war broke out in heaven. And so from that moment on, Satan set out to thwart the plan of God. And if you read all throughout the Old Testament, what you see, I believe, is Satan's efforts to defile the bloodline of Christ. If I can defile the bloodline, then I can mess this whole plan up and I can win. He's trying to cut God off at the pass. And each step of the way, Satan's efforts fail. But that doesn't negate the fact that there's a war taking place, that he's going to continue to try to win. It's a spiritual war. 
Apostle Paul alludes to this in Ephesians 6.12. He tells us, For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against who? The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But as humans, we spend so much time fighting against each other that we fail to realize the real war that's going on behind the scenes. That's what the Apostle Paul is trying to tell us. And he's going the additional step and says, listen, there's no bystanders in this war. That's what I want you to understand this morning. There are no bystanders. You can't sit on the side and say, I'm going to buy a box of popcorn and watch. Nobody gets to do that. There's no third party. There's two sides, and you're on one side or the other. You're on God's side or you're on Satan's side. There is no third party. And Paul is calling to Christians. He's saying, listen, you're called to be effective in this battle, to be effective in battling the enemy and his schemes. Ah, but in order to do that, in order to be effective, we have to know who our enemy is. You can't fight a battle if you don't know who the enemy is. And that's where this passage in Revelation takes us next. That's what John's going to do. He starts in verse 9, and he's going to give us four instructive titles of our enemy. The best way, it's just the way my brain works, but the best way for me to explain this is, how many people, anybody in here play high school football? Raise your hand. All right, we had a handful. Okay, depending on who your coach was and how they ran their program, what'd you do on Saturday, Sunday, or Monday? Or maybe all three. Before you played the next team, what'd you do? You watched film. Why'd you watch film? Yeah, because I want to know who my enemy is. Because what am I trying to do? I'm trying to win. And back in the day, before the internet, the coach would get in the car on Saturday morning about 6 o'clock, and he'd drive however far he had to drive, and he'd meet another guy, and they'd trade a VHS tape. That's how old I am. He would trade a VHS tape, and he'd drive back, and then he'd watch it over and over and over. Then he'd show it to his players over and over and over. They'd break down every play because I want to know. When that guy goes in motion, he's going to run this play or this play. And I'm going to stuff it. And we're going to win. But it's a whole lot harder to win on Friday if I didn't have the film and I didn't study it. What you're getting from John right here in this passage is the film breakdown. This is your enemy. This is who he is. And I'm telling you, you're supposed to be effective, but you better study the film. If you want to win, you better study the film. So he gives us four titles of our enemy. He starts, and he says, The great dragon, and the great dragon was thrown down. Now, I believe that this phrase, the great dragon, it should draw our attention to two passages of Scripture. If I know my Bible, it should immediately draw me to two passages. The first is Ezekiel 28, 12 to 13. It says, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. This is a prophecy in Ezekiel 28 that serves a dual purpose. It's a word about the king of Tyre. You can see that at the very beginning. But it's also a word about our great enemy. Because if you look at verse 13, it says, You were in Eden. Hey, newsflash. 
The king of Tyre wasn't in Eden. Wasn't in Eden. So this serves two purposes. And one is it tells us about our enemy. In verse 12, it says, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Here's what you need to know. There most certainly was something great about our enemy. He was perfect, he was beautiful, and he was full of wisdom. Hear me now. God didn't create evil, it was Satan who became evil, but he created him beautiful and perfect, full of wisdom. And we're told in Revelation, not only is he great, but he's a great dragon, which speaks to ferocity and terror, right? In in other words, what John's trying to tell us is, he's a strong enemy that's going to stop at nothing to see your defeat. In other words, he should be taken seriously. I told you this should draw our attention to two passages of Scripture. The second one is 1 Peter 5.8. you got an enemy. He's running around like a roaring lion seeking to devour anything he can find. Peter's point there is, listen, don't fall asleep. Take the, don't take the enemy for granted. Take him seriously. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Take him seriously. That's what Peter's saying. That's what John's trying to tell you. Listen, he is great. He is ferocious. He goes on next and he, and he says in verse 9, the ancient serpent, and the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent. It's not complex. It's not something. You get a lot, we're going to talk about this in a minute. You're like, I can't understand my Bible. I've got to dig real deep. It doesn't make sense to me. This ain't complex right here. He says he's the ancient serpent. John's making an easy and direct connection for the reader. And he wants to take you all the way back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. That's the connection, the natural connection that John wants you to make. Our great enemy that is present in Revelation is the same enemy that's present at the beginning, all the way back in Genesis 3. And you've got to ask the question, well, what did he do? What did the serpent do? Well, let's look at it, Genesis 3, 1 through 7. It says, now the serpent, it was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. Here's what he did. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You'll not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took off its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Notice the very first thing that the serpent does. He walks up to Eve, and he simply whispers in her ear, Did God really say? Did he really say? He's a liar, and he's a deceiver. Did did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? What did we just read? He was crafty, more crafty than any beast in the field. He was the best, and he knows exactly what he's doing. 
He was working his next level craftiness. He was sly, he was smooth, and he just put in a simple little seed of doubt into the mind of Eve. Did God really say? And Eve replies back, yeah, that's exactly what he said. We can't just eat from any tree that we want. We can eat from this tree, we can eat from that tree, but we can't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. We can't even touch it or we'll die. And the serpent just simply replies back and he says, Come on, Eve. Are you serious? You're not going to die. In fact, here's the deal. God just wants to withhold this fruit from you. He just doesn't want you to eat from that tree because he knows when you eat it, you're going to become like him and you're going to know good and evil. So what happens? Eve believes a lie and her and Adam partake in the very fruit that God told them to stay away from. A crafty serpent, a smooth lie, and sin enters into the world to the very desire of the enemy. And then John keeps going. He builds off this idea. And next he says, The great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. The next thing you see is this descriptor, the devil. In the Greek, this is diabolos, which just means the accuser. So not only is our enemy great, not only is he fierce and tenacious, not only is he crafty, but he's also an accuser and a slanderer. What does it mean to slander? It's the action or crime of making a false statement that's damaging to a person's reputation. So it's a statement. It's something I say that's not true, but it does harm. And at his core, that's who our enemy is. He's a slanderer. Another word for slander is accusation. And that's one of the greatest ways that our enemy attacks. Look at Revelation 12.10. That's exactly how he's defined. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. We're in a spiritual battle. And this is the full-on attack of our enemy. He exists to accuse you, and his aim is to get you to agree with the accusation. Did you hear that? He exists to accuse you, and his whole goal is to get you to agree with his accusation. That's the number one tactic of the enemy. It's his attempt to neutralize you and take you out of the fight. That's what you need to understand. It's an attempt to neutralize you and take you out of the fight. And he accuses to create doubt, division, discord, and to destroy you. And John is trying to tell you that's what the enemy does. That's who he is. I recently recently heard another pastor, and he said that the enemy does this one of two ways. He does it through a wound or a word. And here's the reality. Life can be hard. It can be difficult. And several, if not all of us, in one way or another, have been wounded by other people in our life. Maybe you have bad parents. Maybe you had a bad spouse, have a bad spouse. Maybe you have a bad coworker, mistreated you. Maybe a friend that you thought was a friend. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're dealing with bad people. But what they said, what they did, 
It was interpreted in a certain way and people got hurt. Wounds that lasted substantial amount of time are still there. The enemy takes those things and he uses them. It's like a crack in the door and he sticks his foot in. And he uses those things to accuse. Just like he did with Eve, he whispers lies into your ear in the hopes that you'll believe him. Simple little things like, you're not good enough. You're not pretty enough. You can't do that. You're, you're not really a good mom. You're not a hard worker. You're just fooling everybody. You're a lost cause. Why do you try so hard? Or that, that other person's a lost cause. Quit messing with them. Or God can never truly love you because of this. And you know it. So quit trying. Those are just a few examples. But he'll come up to you, jam his foot in the crack in the door, and whisper those lies into your ear in the hopes that you'll buy into them. He's going to take advantage of hurt and pain, and he's going to try to neutralize you. And those things fester, and they grow over time. And if we allow, they become effective, and they, we begin to believe those lies, and now all of a sudden we're neutralized. We're out of the fight. Other times, it's just a word. It's not necessarily a wound. Maybe it comes from somebody else, or maybe it's just the thoughts inside your head. And they just repeat. They repeat. And you start to buy into the lie. Again, just like he did with Eve. So I told you, maybe I, I get in your kitchen a little bit, but let's just think about, what does that look like in real life? Well, let's just talk about the church. What does that look like in the church? What can these accusations actually look like? Let's just talk about a few things. One, how about prayer? You, you've heard this morning about the power of prayer. But how many times do you hear or maybe have said simple statements like, I don't know how to pray. Or this one tends to be more popular. I don't feel comfortable praying in public. And maybe you've never said that, but maybe you think it. Maybe on Wednesday nights when we gather and spend more than half the time in prayer, you don't want to be here because you've bought into the lie that I don't feel comfortable playing in public. And if I come on Wednesday night and we're going to pray for 30 minutes, I'm going to have to be there. And I'm either going to have to pray or everybody's going to know when I don't. And so when I'm not here, what happens? I'm neutralized. He's taking me out of the fight. And if you think about that simple accusation, how ridiculous is it? And yet, what do we do? We believe it. We buy into the lie that we don't know how to pray when all prayer is, is talking to God. Everybody in here has the ability to say, God, help me. That's a prayer. Don't buy into the lie and be neutralized by believing that I don't know how to pray, or I'm just uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable. True Christian believers are not gathered together judging the prayers of others. But the enemy wants you to believe that so he can neutralize you. Think about Bible study. I don't understand the Bible, it's hard to read, it's boring. So I just can't read it. 
How about this? How about, of course you struggle reading the Bible. It's a weapon of war. You understand that? It's a weapon of war. Everybody in here can read. You read the newspaper. You read the internet. Everybody in here, including myself, you have fallen down the rabbit hole of the internet at one time or another. This is interesting. This is interesting. And next thing you know, three hours has passed. You can read. Several people in here enjoy reading. You have certain authors you like to read. You like to read books. But yet we fail to be diligent in studying the Word like we should. I, I, reverse, reverse it and ask this question. What would happen if the Bible did come alive to you? Why do you think it's hard? Because He wants to take you out of the game. I am going to have to dig. I am going to have to work. But it's worth it. It's a weapon of war, and the enemy wants it to be difficult. Have you ever noticed when you sit down, I guarantee you that the men that stand up here and do what I'm doing can vouch for this, but have you ever noticed that as an individual, when you sit down, okay, I'm going to study the Word, and everything in your world tries to take over. All these thoughts pop into your mind. I've got to get this done. I've got to get this done. i got a kid. Now he's screaming. I got a kid, now they're fighting. Oh, I forgot that game's on right now. That's my world. Why do those things happen? It's not coincidence. You're in a war. You sat down to fight, and now the enemy wants to neutralize you and take you out of the fight. He, that's, that's the big mischaracterization that we have about Satan, is that he's trying to make us his first lieutenant. No, he's not. He's just trying to get you out of the fight. He doesn't need you on his team. He just wants you on the sideline. Here's a, here's a couple more. He's like, you're like, shut up. Here's a couple more. How about visitation? We have these thoughts like, oh, I don't want to impose. I don't want people knocking on my door. So I don't want to go knock on somebody else's door. Or I'm sure even if it's just a phone call or a text, well, that person's probably busy. I'm not going to bother him right now. Where do you think those thoughts come from? If a name pops up in your head, where do you think that comes from? Send the dang text. Pick up the dang phone. That's how the Holy Spirit works. But we let the enemy put us on the sideline because I, I just hate to impose on that person right now. It's dinner time. They're probably eating or whatever. What about evangelism? I'm called as a believer to share the gospel. Well, I don't, I don't know the Bible well enough. Or, what if I screw that up? What if I screw it up? Do you know how ridiculous that sounds? Do you understand how limiting of God that thought is? You don't think God can handle it? You don't think the Holy Spirit will guide you? Because that's what the book says. You know the gospel. Share it. And if you don't know the gospel better than the lost, maybe you need the gospel. Get in the book. You've got to remember, I'm not trying to ruffle feathers, but you've got to remember you're in the middle of a war and there's nothing passive about wartime. The enemy is an accuser. 
And if you believe the accusations, you're going to run from God rather than abide in his presence. And a weapon of war will be neutralized. As a believer, you fail to see yourself as a weapon of war when in reality that is exactly what you are. John goes on and he, say, he, he referenced him as the enemy. He says, who's called the devil and Satan. So he finishes up by revealing the proper name of our enemy. It's what his name is. He's the adversary. That's what Satan means, the adversary. I think there's some real importance here. What's John doing? Right? You go back to English class. Some people will have bad flashbacks. But, so their teacher will ask you, well, why do they write it that way? What's the author trying to tell you? Well, what's John doing here? Why did he say Satan? He didn't have to. Why did he say it? He's just told us how great and powerful the enemy is. He's linked him to creation. He said this is the same enemy consistent throughout all of time. He's put on full display what he does. He's the accuser. He's the chief of all liars. And now we get a name. It's John's way of saying to you, he's real. He's real. It's not the cartoon with the pitchfork. This is the great enemy. He's real. He's very real. He has a name. Don't take him lightly. Don't take spiritual warfare lightly. You're in a battle. If you want to be effective in the battle, you have to recognize that you have an enemy. You have to believe that he's real. Not a casual acceptance of, yeah, that could be. A real belief that he is real. And you've got to understand how he plays the game. We get to verse 10, and now we shift from Satan to Christ. So we see Satan the accuser, and now we see Christ the victor. It says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of, the testi- of their testimony. John hears this loud voice in heaven, and this loud voice declares victory. It declares victory through the redemptive work of Christ. And what we see is this voice speaks of four wonderful realities. So you kind of got a parallel here. You got four descriptors of the enemy, and now you got four descriptors of victory. He talks about the salvation of God, the power of God, the kingdom of God, and the authority of Christ. And the believer in Christ, the follower of Christ, who gives his life completely to Christ, is granted all of these things. So when Satan comes to accuse, well, how do I win? When Satan comes to accuse, those accusations have no real power because they can't overcome the salvation, power, kingdom, and authority of Christ. The only, hear me, the only power that those accusations of the enemy have is the power that you choose to give them. That's what's going on, and that's what John's trying to communicate as he sees this vision and hears this word. Christ is victorious, and therefore, as a believer, you're victorious through him. How does it work? It works two ways. In verse 11, it tells us, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. It's real easy for us to forget that our victory has been settled. It's a determined outcome. There's no guesswork. The followers of Christ win 
Because Christ claimed our victory through the shedding of his blood on the cross. It was a win. Through that, we defeat sin and Satan. His accusations can't stand because we've been washed in the blood of Christ. Do you understand that? You're not called to live for victory, but you're called to live in victory. You understand the difference between that? I'm not trying to win. I've already won. I'm supposed to live it out. If that's the case, then why does Satan attack? Why does he attack me if I've won? Again, because he wants to neutralize me. He wants to limit my effectiveness for the kingdom. It says they won, they experienced victory through the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. That's an interesting passage. The way that we're victorious is through the blood of the Lamb. But we also experience victory because of the word of our testimony. That applies to all believers. Here it's talking about martyrs who suffered loss of their life because of their commitment to Christ. The world looks at that. It's like, that's a loss, not a win. They lost their life. But we know that Christ not only conquered sin, but he also conquered death. Satan may take your life, but he can't take your eternity. Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Simple translation. Win, win. You kill me, I'm with Christ. Win. You don't, I'm going to share Christ. Win. That's victory. And if we live a life that's fully committed to Christ, here's what happens. The tables get turned. Again, why does Satan accuse the believer? He wants to neutralize you, to limit your effectiveness. But when we, as believers, fully live out our commitment to Christ, what happens? We neutralize the enemy. We limit his effectiveness as we exemplify Christ and draw others to him. That's the point. That's the point. And as followers of Christ, we have to recognize the victory that we have in him. Look at verse 12. Therefore, therefore, what is the point of that word? It's a linking word. What's it talking about? Therefore, the other way to say therefore is as a result of everything that just happened. We just talked about all of this. And because of that, what's the next word? Rejoice. Because you know that Christ has victory, rejoice. Because you know you're in Him and you have victory through Him, rejoice. Scripture calls on us to walk in victory. So quit giving the enemy victory. The lies and accusations of the devil, they don't define you. The wounds from your parents, they don't define you. The wounds from your job, your friends, your kids, your kids don't define you. Your grandkids don't define you. As a believer, what defines you is Christ. That's what the Word says. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to understand a few things. I'm, I'm wrapping up here. A few things I want you to understand. If I'm called to live in victory, I have to understand that victory implies a battle. 
implies a battle. Quit thinking everything's going to be easy. Victory implies a battle. I can't win the football game on Friday night if I don't play the stinging football game. Or if there is no football game. You don't win. Victory implies a battle. Victory requires an understanding of the enemy. I've got to know who the enemy is. I've got to know that he's real. And I've got to know what he's up to. Victory is found in Christ and Christ alone. I'm not called to win this thing on my own. It's already been won. I'm just called to live it out through the one who won it. And victory on a large scale, here's the one that we don't want to wrestle with. We want to push this one away, far away. Victory doesn't come without a fight. Doesn't come without a fight. Is reading my Bible going to be difficult at times? Yeah, but saddle up and fight. As a church, we should desire revival. We should desire, desire growth. We should desire being effective in our community. Remember those headlines I just read? Newsflash. They're coming here. You can hide under a rock, and you can say that will never happen here. They're coming. As a church, as a body of believers, our desire should be to be effective. How do we do that? Well, you can mark this one down on the calendar because I dare this is a different place, so this may not be true. But for most of you, I've never heard a pastor say anything on a Sunday morning from the book of Leviticus. So I got something for you. It's Leviticus 26, 6 through 8. And this is talking about blessings for the people of God if they're obedient. Starting in verse 6, it says, I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. You can live without fear. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. Here's what I want you to hear. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousands, and your enemies shall fall. If we recognize the war, if we recognize the reality of it, and if we're obedient, what happens? I think we're going to be blessed. And notice what's going on here. We've gone to English class, now we're going to math class. It says, five of you shall chase a hundred. Five of you shall chase a hundred. Five to a hundred is 20 times growth. Okay, you with me? 5 times 20 is 100. Then it says, and 100 of you shall chase 10,000. That ain't 20 times growth. 100 to 10,000 is 100 times growth. Which should tell you one thing. I think there's a principle here. There's power in numbers. And if we link arms and band together and are obedient as a body... We can be quite effective, far more effective than we can be on our own. So if we desire to see growth, if we desire to see revival, if we desire to have an impact on our culture, we have to recognize that spiritual warfare is real, that we have an enemy that's real, that we have an enemy that's fierce, but we know what he's about, we know how he works, and we know that we're victorious through Christ. So the call to arms is 
to live that out, to live that out, and as a church body to live that out together so that we can be effective as we reach out to this community, as we reach out across the world, because that's what we're called to do. We're not called to live in fear. We're called to recognize that we're victorious in this spiritual battle. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for man, just the opportunity that we have to serve in the upcoming weeks, the opportunity that you've chosen to use us. Lord, I pray that we don't cast things aside, that we don't think that things are coincidence, that we recognize the spiritual battle that we're in on a personal level and on a home level and a church level and just as a nationwide and worldwide level, Lord. But not recognize it in a manner that, that causes us to be fearful because we know that you have claimed victory. But Lord, I pray that we would live in a manner that would walk that out, that we would be faithful, that we would be obedient, that we would lean on you through all difficulties, and that we would raise your name high so that it can be worshiped, glorified, and proclaimed. Thank you for this place and all the ways that you've blessed us. And Lord, may we live up to those blessings. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, before you go, I, if I could give you one uh, apology, please. Uh, what I said this morning about other churches, I, I shouldn't have said that. That was, that was